In our world, nobody owns anything, but everyone is rich. For what greater wealth can there be than cheerfulness, peace of mind, freedom from anxiety, and the ability to embrace the void? I hate purity. I hate goodness. I don't want virtue to exist anywhere. I want everyone corrupt. Leaves from the vine Falling so slow Sometimes, Master, it is difficult for meatbags to step back and gain some perspective on death and its importance in their insignificant lives. I don't know if I'm up for this. I'm so emotional, I can barely think straight. Great. Use that. Embrace the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Friends, episode 191 of Embrace the Void, where we are looking to be the change that we want to see at the beating heart of our metaphysics. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we are once again discussing utopias. So let's go nowhere. Life ends in death, which we as a species are cursed with knowing, resulting in something. My guest this week is William Paris, the Frank B. Weeks Visiting Assistant Professor at Wesleyan and starting this fall, an assistant professor at the University of Toronto and the co-host of What's Left of Philosophy podcast. William, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello, void. I'm, I'm enjoying just being here in the nothingness. I've been looking forward to this my whole life. It's relaxing, right? It's a nice kind of chill feel. Yeah, no, I think, you know, life has too much stuff in it, so the void is where it's at. Right. Absolutely. Way, way too many atoms, not enough void, I think we can all agree. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I appreciate you coming on. It's been really fun. Uh, we had Gil on a little while ago. I'm happy to be working my way through the What's Left of Philosophy gang. I really do love the show. And um, on there, I had heard you talking about utopia in particular as a like useful concept in sociological discourse. And I thought that was a really exciting thing because it's something that I'm very interested in both on like the philosophers in space side of things, but also I've talked on this show previously about like AI utopia is as well so i'm really happy to bring you on and hear your thoughts about that as it specifically relates to uh dubois you you sent me a paper that was a real banger it's a chapter from a book that um we'll dive into here some before we get to that do you want to let folks know just a little bit about like your philosophical background and interests and what brings you to this particular material Yeah, so I mainly specialize in Africana or African-American philosophy, political philosophy, uh, critical theory, and what's known as 20th century continental with your your Derrida's, your Foucault's, and your Adorno's, etc. You know, which makes for a weird mix, honestly. You know, I'd like to think of myself, I work on both sides of of the pond, and I try to see if I can bring them together uh, Mm -hmm. often. 
it's really, really difficult. And so how I got here is I was trained as a continental philosopher uh, at, at Penn State University. Mm-hmm. But, you know, within the first couple of years there, I realized I really wanted to work on race. I really wanted to know, you know, who these other black thinkers are are and i also realized continental philosophy just couldn't answer the questions i wanted to ask about black social life about social theory around race and so that eventually brought me to being the person that i am now Uh, you know france fanon was my first gateway and then it continued from there fanon's quite a gateway drug i've found he really he's at the sort of heart of a lot of interesting uh, stuff that's going on and i feel like you know i just i just heard his name start to pop up in the anti-woke circles because of his material about oh, violence no. because like of, like eventually it was going to happen right like you knew that like i know i know but i wasn't i wasn't prepared i was hoping they'd stick to uh marcuse and foucault for a little bit longer mm-hmm. before they found out about Fanon. yeah no Yo, we're there I'm now trying to keep him secret <laughs> ah yeah so i think he'll probably come up in the midst of our discussion here a little bit because i do want to chat with you a bit some about like sci-fi and afro-pessimism and i feel like he's kind of an important precursor to what's going on there in a lot of ways um but let's let's start a little bit Mm -hmm. with the sort of the central arguments of your paper um and you you begin by contrasting sort of du bois utopianism with plato's republic um and i was wondering Mm -hmm. could you unpack that comparison a little bit and how you feel like it brings utopias into the picture yeah so to start off with you know du bois was deeply immersed in what's called the classics you know he loved the you know the homers the the greek thought in fact there's a, a specific reference in souls of black folk where he thinks the dream of the university is to practice those time-worn methods as they did in the groves by plato i believe that's an, uh, that's a direct quotation and so it became like quite clear to me that, you know, utopia really, you know, on two levels, really works through souls of black folk insofar as for Du Bois, art and education are a form of utopian critique. They allow the the black subject, more specifically even, the black consciousness to no longer be weighed down and punished by the contingent black body they they happen to have and allows them to see a realm of ideas where their blackness is not a barrier to communication to understanding so on the on on the first level you know i see the connection with plato because the boys took plato seriously the mm-hmm. second level is, and I'm not the first to say this, but you know, Plato's Republic is also a utopian text. It is quite literally working through, you know, um, a political society that's not connected to this world here and now, in order to understand what would be the best manner to arrange these social relations. Mm-hmm. And so, both Plato's Republic and the Boys of Souls of Black Folk they emerge from a time of of great social crisis. Plato is dealing with you know, immense corruption in Greece. And as might be obvious to your listeners, when Du Bois writes Souls of Black Folk in 1903, he's dealing with a racially stratified republic. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, a, a republic that's split apart by racism and what he famously calls the color line. Mm-hmm. 
And so it is from, you know, this connection between the two that I, I, I come to the realization uh, in the paper that Du Bois models a good chunk of his political thought on what he takes to be going on in Plato's Republic. That, you know, one, there needs to be a balance of souls, a balance of appetites and intellectual lead. And two, he has a very kind of uh, clear idea where he thinks the, that intellectual leadership should come from, which is uh, what he calls. And he wasn't the one who invented the talented tent, but, you know, he's most known for this understanding of like the, the creme de la creme. The upper crest of the black community needs to balance the appetites of, you know, the working class, unclean, uncouth black community who he thinks just so quickly after slavery don't know how to be a part of American civilization. Mm-hmm. And uh, I realized that the talented tent bears a remarkable semblance to Plato's philosopher kings. And so the last thing I'll say about it is, you know, the attention I pay to souls of black folk, you, I think is the case can be made that you also see him playing on various motifs in mm-hmm. the Republic. You know, the allegory of the cave, mm-hmm. you know, shows up on, in two really important parts of the text where it's about someone escapes the chains of appearance and lies and they go up to the son of truth and then they try to go back down and free the chained. Du Bois thinks history moves because of the work of great mm-hmm. men who must pull their brethren up to up to their 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 station. And the second place is in the work of fiction in Souls of the Black Folk, you know, of the coming of John. You know, I can say more about this if you'd like, but I'll just say, quite literally, it's a story about, you know, a black character named John going up north getting an education and being forced to go back down South to try to save his community because he realizes he can't do it on its own. To me, it seems rather obvious with all, even his invocations of it's about discovering truth with a capital T that Platonism and Du Boisian thought, you know, through utopia have you know, a really deep connection. Man, there's a lot there. Really interesting stuff. So let me let me throw out a couple of controversial claims here for you and a question and and, and try to understand uh, if I'm if I'm following this correctly. Do you think it'd be fair to say, for example, based on this description that like maybe it's the case that Plato is politically black, so to speak, and that the Republic is the first text of mm-hmm. Afrofuturism that was ever written, whereas also, it seems like based on what you just described, right, love of the classics, love of great men, love of elite education. Du Bois sounds a little politically white in some ways, and I'm curious why you feel like mm. Du Bois has not been canceled yet, given his clearly cancelable <laughs> worldview. Let me start with the second question. Well, <laughs> while the boys was alive, my man experienced a lot of cancellations, especially during the height of uh, of anti-McCarthyism mm-hmm. and all of that. Like literally his passport was taken by the U.S. government. But let's go a little bit deeper into your question of why he hasn't been canceled yet. So I need to like cards on the table. I deeply love the boys. I think he's immensely important, etc. But one might say that when people want to get introduced to African American philosophy in the a way our academy is arranged now, Du Bois is a natural place to go. Why? He was uh, he was trained at Harvard. You know, uh, he uh, worked with William James. He studied in Berlin. You know, in other words, Du Bois 
he kind of looks a lot like us. And I'll leave your audience members to figure out who the us is mm-hmm. that's speaking. Of course, there's so much more to Du Bois, but he casts a long shadow in philosophy because, you know, in essence, you know, he at least the works that people pay attention to, which is usually souls of black folk, maybe dark water, you know, traditional philosophy as it's been practiced for a very long time. It doesn't seem like it is that much of a radical departure. That's why there are endless debates. And thank God, you know, there are people who are pushing back against this, saying this isn't a productive way of discover, you know, investigating him. But it's, is Du Bois a Hegelian? Mm-hmm. Is he a pragmatist? Is he a Jamesian? Is he a Herd, you know, Herdurian? You know, I'm not trying to say that Du Bois is a Platonist. I'm saying that Plato was important to, to Du Bois. And this is just another aspect that's in the stew. But this constant desire to trace the lineages of black thinkers to a a European foundation Mm. so that we know that they're really doing philosophy Mm. Mm -hmm. is -hmm. is rampant. And so to answer your question rather glibly, actually, of course, that's that's why Du Bois hasn't been canceled yet. Are Mm. you kidding? Yeah. Um, To go a little bit deeper, and then I want to get to your first question, but I I have a little less to say about the first question, though I really (laughs) like it. It's also because... Du Bois comes from a black political tradition that's still with us. You know, the notion of we need a black brokerage leadership class is really at home, especially in the United States. Du Bois didn't invent it. And all our problems don't go back to Du Bois. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that it's really easy to recognize a, a manner of thinking where what needs to be resolved first are these abstract ideals that then should be filtered down to mm-hmm. the people. Now, Plato's politically black. <laughs> uh, I don't know. You might need like you know, someone like uh, 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 Nicholas uh, on Twitter to answer that question. I'm not sure I call Plato politically black. I think um, if one understands blackness normatively as undoing hierarchies, Plato's no, not your boy. Not so much. <laughs> um, this is a man who, when he looked at democracy, he thought, "No, thank you." <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> that's fair that's fair it was a little bit i just wanted to suggest that the republic was the first text of afrofuturism and i was going to get my way there somehow um but no that's totally fair I, it, it's, it's great you should write I that really... paper i will definitely <laughs> cite it <laughs> who knows i might cite it to try to mm-hmm. cancel you or cite be like mm-hmm. see look it's black mm-hmm. everywhere that's fair <laughs> so so sticking on this topic of the role of the classics in education because this is i think like a hot button like everybody's in the woke side is trying to get rid of the classics kind of talking point i think it would surprise a lot of people to hear the way that du bois talks about the classics um and this is something that i think you also see with folks like gramsci um do you want to there's a there's a passage that you cited in your paper that is i think probably my favorite passage that i've read of du bois that i would if you're willing to i'd love to hear you read it and then like explain all the levels that you feel like are going on in that particular quote. So this is, um, where is this from again, actually? Uh, this is from Souls of Black Folk. Right. It is at the very end of the chapter called Of the Training of Black Men. Mm, yes, thank you. You want me to read the quote? Yeah, if you don't mind. I sit with Shakespeare and he winces not. Across the color line, I move arm in arm with Balzac and Dumont. Summon, I summon Aristotle and Aurelius and what soul I will. And they come all gratuitous, gr- graciously, with no scorn nor condescension. So, wed with truth, I dwell above the veil. Is this the life you grudge us, O knightly America? I mean, 
the boys could write. Oh, and chills. like, yeah, you know, <laughs> no one could take that away from him. So, yeah, this question of the classics, you know, and this is this is even more of the moment than maybe this is also what you're thinking of. But mm-hmm. uh, recently, either Howard University mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. moving forward with eliminating classics or has. And there's been a huge outcry you know, right. from people like Cornell West and the students, etc. But here's my take on it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make sense, you know. You know, are there people out there who are saying cancel the classics? I'm, I'm, I'm sure, but here's the type of thinker I am. I want to understand how Black people actually came to the ideas that they came to, and to offer a myth of, you know, Black thought, Black politics, Black culture as utopian and what you know. If we get in, if we get into it, utopian in the bad sense mm. of completely cut off from social reality, you know, self-generating, autonomous. You know, it really misunderstands that no. A figure in this tradition that you read has not read Plato or Hegel or Darwin, etc. Not Douglas, not MLK, not Anna Julia Cooper. And so, you know, to me, you know, to study the classics, even though, you know, I'm a more of a contemporary you know, thinker, but I do history philosophy, is to actually understand how people think. It is to understand, and I do take Du Bois' point on this, that no way of thinking is inherently racialized. It becomes racialized for, you know, reasons of propaganda. And, you know, the fact is that Du Bois is trying to articulate a worldview where he is saying, we too belong to those history of ideas. And, you know, obviously the world he wants to see is that even, you know, Europeans or white people, whatever you want to call them, will be able to participate in the ideas or the cultural gift that black people eventually will be articulating. To want to get rid of the classics, I mean, it's also a way of thinking that the classics only belong to Europe when, for instance, we only still have Aristotle because Arab people you know, mm-hmm. translated him and kept him alive. So it even misunderstands world history and why we would ever cede that ground to others mm-hmm. is beyond me. I think that's right. And I, you know, it's, it's like, it's such a tricky thing. I'm doing this education degree right now. And like, when I think about like Gramsci arguing that there is some value in having the classics as like a shared background of cultural knowledge, but then at the same time, there's only so much space in the curriculum, like temporarily speaking, right? Students can only be taught so many things and there's more things of value, I think, than you're ever going to be able to teach them. Um, And so like, there's this trade-off just in general between do we want to teach like a core literature of cultural knowledge that will be in theory available to everyone which has its benefits but necessarily also Mm -hmm. would mean that you're cutting out a bunch of other kinds of stuff or do we want a curriculum where students are able to read a bunch of different things and that means some of them don't end up reading some large chunk of the classics um but as long as they're still getting you know enriched as individuals from that process right like those are the kinds Mm -hmm. of trade-offs that I do think are really important, but I think get lost in the sort of debate over this being like, you know, are we just trying to cancel white guys or something like that? Um, so I just think yeah. it's, you know, it's so valuable to look at this, this, these kinds of early in the tradition, even I think um, trying to see a way to 
bring these materials together, synthesize them um, together. And, and the other thing that I think is going on there, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, you use a great term in your paper about um, the possible permeating contemporary reality, um, which mm-hmm. I think strikes me as kind of the core of Afrofuturism, um, as I understand it. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, like, do you agree that in this sense, that means that what we have here is a project of using cultural materials to reshape material reality by kind of expanding that mm-hmm. cultural Overton window? Is that is that what we're on about here? Yeah, and I think I can bring that question together to say a little bit more about curriculum mm-hmm. and the role of the classics. So when I say, you know, when I'm talking about the possible permeating reality, you know, the way that I understand utopia, if I can be, you know, as concise as possible, is it is um, a manner of, a, of analysis that tries to realize what possibilities we have in the present that are are often foreclosed from us. You know, we're often like, you told you only have like two options. If we want to talk about electoral politics in the United States, it's only Democrat or Republican, which is a way of, you know, artificially constraining the horizon of who we could be, what we might do, but also what we might actually want in this really fucked up world. Mm-hmm. And so when Du Bois is talking about the classics, you know, you know, sure, I can be hard on him. My my critique of his elitism doesn't come from him enjoying the classics, you know, because think about it this way. When Du Bois writes Souls of Black Folk, Reconstruction failed or fell, you know, only like, you know, 20 years earlier. You still have, you know, an incredible amount of black people who haven't had formal schooling, mm-hmm. who haven't, you know, um, have been trained in literacy who at that point in time, there's race science that says that black people will naturally die out if not for slavery. And now that slavery is gone, they cannot raise their station. Mm -hmm. So at a very specific conjunction, it might make sense to to, to defend the classics, to say this must be in the curriculum, especially if you think that this is what is necessary to be um, a full participant in American civilization. If you want to reveal that the possibility for Black people beyond the sort of biological damnation, where if not for white people ruling over them, they will naturally die out, then it sort of seems like the classics is a really, you know, robust way to push back against that ideology mm-hmm. and to organize black people in such a way that that is becomes manifestly untrue. Mm-hmm. It is quite clear that they are not backwards. But we need to ask ourselves the question, so what are our questions now? Do we still need, uh, in other words, you know, are the classics good in and of themselves? Or are they good in what they allow us to analyze, to do, to envision beyond our, our horizon? Mm-hmm. And so those who will defend the classics if they're good in themselves, for me, that's way too idealist. That's not what ideas are for. You know, even someone like Gramsci, it's about how you actually bring these ideas into the conjunction with the, the current existing social processes and forces. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what we need to figure out about the poss- about possibility permeating the present is, so what are our possibilities now? You know, I think very often we're constantly playing, you know, the game of the past, you know, where um, acting like the 1960s are still here. Or if you're looking to Du Bois the Souls of Black Book for a how-to manual of how to do political emancipation now, you're not going to find that. Mm-hmm. He wasn't responding to um, our social reality. 
And so, you know, for me, what culture allows us to do is it allows us to agenda set. Mm -hmm. It allows us to say, so what are the questions we should be asking now? What are the contradictions? What are the frustrations? What are the the injustices? And insofar as it, one, refines our sensibilities around those questions, but two, allows us to develop institutions that, you know, can, you know, expand our imagination to problem solve, that's what we should be aiming for. Mm -hmm. Because my sense is that far more is actually possible than what, if we want to put it this way, the hegemonic society will will allow us to know, mm -hmm. will allow us to learn, and often will want to blunt our critical capacities into a type of realism that really isn't actually the measure of reality, if I can put it that way. Yeah, so it's really interesting you mentioned the way you say there that like we have to sort of be thinking about now versus the 60s. It's funny to me because I spend a lot of time in conspiracy theory land and more and more I feel like we are living, we're still living in the echoes of the 60s and that like very much hasn't changed in a lot of this discourse and that the animosity that is that is sort of rampant, like really begins in a crucial way during that period of like greater expansion of, of rights. Mm -hmm. I'm curious what, like just very basically, how do you feel like things are different now? How do you feel like things have actually changed from the sixties and like, what are sort of the differences in what we need to be working towards now versus what you felt like they were working towards then? Yeah. So there, 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 well, I'll stick with a couple of things. There are many mm -hmm. things we could say about the difference in, in the 60s. You know, one the difference from the 60s is that there was a robust political global left. You know, uh, I think, again, in U.S. consciousness, the civil rights movement is this, you know, almost this miracle that happened, this autonomous space. It's clearly all about MLK's I Have a Dream speech. By the way, there's nothing that annoys me more <laughs> than, you know, people responding to our, our current social problems being like, you know, but, you know, MLK said, you know, you're supposed to judge people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. And I'm like, you actually don't know what MLK was about, who was deeply anti-militarism, anti-capitalist. And that's because the civil rights movement was a part of broader anti-colonial struggles that were happening in Africa and East Asia. These people self-consciously thought of themselves as doing this, not like, oh, strange, there are things happening around the world. And so, you know, a difference from the 60s is that we don't have that now. You know, um, after, you know, um, uh, the, the fall of the USSR uh, and, you know, the sort of, a, you know, a, a, if you're into capitalism, congrats, uh, you won. <laughs> you did it. You know, there was you know, a deep <laughs> demoralization, disorganization. And so I think sometimes, you know, we look to the 60s because we yearn for that, that aesthetic memory where things like seems like you know, everything's like really militant and you uh -huh. have the stream that this automatically happened, but it didn't. The second thing that's really different uh, uh, now from the 60s, if we want to like you know, be focused on you know, like black politics, is that the, the gap between a sort of um, a black elite and middle class, uh, uh, middle class and a broader black working class is far wider. Mm -hmm. And it is quite clear that you know, the lesson that was taken from the 60s was let's incorporate some of these black people to manage, 
to uh, speak for uh, the rest of, uh, of the quote unquote race. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why you can have, you know, black mayors who will say black lives matter at the same moment. They're calling the cops to break up a, a protest, mm-hmm. you know, and so that's a real contradiction. And, you know, uh, to go back to the Du Bois, we can see, you know, how that contradiction has increased, uh, has increasingly flowered. Mm-hmm. And so it's important to, you know, remember that, you know, I think when we think about back to the 60s and we can get into like talking about, you know, art and, and all that type of stuff is that, you know, people remember the segregation. They remember what seemed like firm lines between black and white, where racism was black and white. And there might be a kind of nostalgia for that because it was much simpler mm-hmm. at least we remember it as if it were much simpler mm-hmm. but it never was that and it's certainly not that now and so we need to like you know, start asking so what is it that we want now if the claim of the civil rights movement was we want to be fully incorporated well we seem to have gotten that at least de jure if mm-hmm. not de facto mm-hmm. you know was this the was this the utopia we wanted is this everything we've ever dreamed of and no, right. It seems, and it seems so that's yeah. <laughs> no, no, I would hope that people would agree not. Right. And right. so the 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 most you know they're like you know I'll just say one you know one to two other things you know one it seems as if you know the memory of the sixties that you know let's say you know a broader sort of lefty liberal took from it is like you know we need to let black people know that they are truly, you know, part of the United States. And I think, you know, it's not an accident. I believe that Jared Sexton has a book on black masculine cinema that, Mm -hmm. you know, many cultural art pieces that black people have them as police officers, have them, you know, part of the military, Mm -hmm. you know, as a way of saying, see, you yourself are a part of the, the United States, you know, the formal United States, you know, you're part of the state. Mm -hmm. But on the other side of it, the I guess the anti-woke and all of that, I guess they think about the 60s as this like this never ending bacchanalia, this death blow that was struck against Western civilization, whose uh, uh, consequences we're still living with today. Mm-hmm. And to that, I have to say, if you think Herbert Marcuse is really important in 2021, like I, I don't know what your reading of history is. Almost no one knows who that man is if they don't study critical theory in <laughs> philosophy or something like that. This is like incredible. You're giving these people much more power than they have ever known while they were alive. <laughs> oh, man. I, I don't know if you've watched the most recent um, James Lindsay, Michael O'Fallon love fest, but they spend a lot of time on Marcuse. So it's very funny to me that you mentioned that in particular, because they are convinced that he is at the beating heart of the woke um, electorate that is moving against them. Um, so there's, oh God, ben, there is so much stuff that I want to talk about in everything that you say that I don't know how we're going to, but I want to actually first back up a little bit because we i feel like we rushed a bit through du bois's um the you know top 10 percent the like as as an approach Mm. to um you know essentially trying to in my opinion sort of counteract kind of the social death of black people which is like make them be viewed as people who are people again right um yeah but as a model, it, I realized as you were talking about it, it, it bears a lot of similarities to the kind of model minority approach, right? Where like immigrants mm-hmm. will try to perfectly mimic the the majority in this kind of way so as to like mm-hmm. prove, you know, I'm one of you, I'm a person like you are. But I I feel like it falls apart because what ends up happening is 
the majority just does what they do normally with you know with these kinds mm-hmm. of views and say well these are the mm-hmm. good ones right and then mm-hmm. here's the majority that are these like terrible ones who can't live up to the the good ones in this kind of way mm-hmm. and it just ends up further dividing these kind of communities i'm curious like do you think that this was just a misstep on du bois part and that like you know you you think mm-hmm. that like, like like with more time he could have realized or like that maybe this was like the only option then but is very much not what we want to be doing right now yeah so yeah i sometimes feel bad you know dragging uh you know people you know who are writing like you know almost a hundred years ago so like i i want your listeners to hear hear me say this you know if i critique the boys that is in no way me saying i know i would have done better in 1903 sure fuck like you know, <laughs> black people are getting lynched all over the place you just saw that apparently the the government just gave up on reconstruction and so you know what this is why i think utopia is so important you know you start reaching for options that that are ready to hand Mm -hmm. that are available Mm -hmm. so that being said and here's something i i I really want to say about the talented 10th uh in in du bois one he does try to move away from that the older he gets he he's never really quite able to shake it he's never really quite able to shake his faith in uh, a type of necessary leadership class that will constitute you know um, a, a social movement but you know a funny story i believe it's in 1947 or something like that uh, a really sort of bougie black fraternity invites <laughs> the boys to give them a talk on the talented 10th and you know what they're thinking they're like this is our dude right this is our dude this is our guy he's gonna play us up my man walks in there and he goes you know i wrote about the talented 10th you know nearly 40 years ago and in that time you really start to think about your ideas and now i look at you and i just see people who are more concerned with amassing their own wealth Mm. you know more concerned with separating themselves from black people you know he basically goes and reads in the right and says you all should be ashamed Mm. I was wrong. It, you know, he even has the line almost word for it. He says, "Yo, uh, my mistake was assuming that the talented tenth would have the moral character of sacrifice." <laughs> and so, Jesus. oh yeah, like imagine Shade. being there and you're like, <laughs> "We paid you to come here to drag us." Yeah. And so, you know what was going on in the you know the souls of black folk is. The boys doesn't think of himself as being an elitist. If by that, you know, you know, one might think he uh, he thinks that black people need to be dominated. And in th- instead, he thinks that the talented tenth, by virtue of their humanities education and all of that, will actually create in them the type of character mm-hmm. who is fit to lead. Again, that connection with Plato. He thinks, you know, you, know, you, you cannot study this without developing a sort of moral education. Right. But souls of black folk, even there, he's he is ambivalent. You know, I know um, the, the notion of double consciousness, which um, you know, Du Bois never really uses double consciousness again after souls of black folk. He uses the color line, he uses the veil, mm-hmm. but you know, double consciousness obviously a rich metaphor that you know so much you know um, especially black cultural production has done a, a great deal with the notion of being of this world yet not. Mm-hmm. being you know too black and not white enough or not black enough and too white but i think many people assume that when du bois is talking about double consciousness that he's talking about all black people he's not he's talking about a problem of the hmm. talented tenth interesting who think by virtue of studying and learning homer and sitting with shakespeare remember the quote i read he says is this what you would deny us 
man. And you know, it's not mm. as if simply sitting with Shakespeare is like, dang, I solved racism. We all good. No, you they you actually find that you know you no longer find yourself connected mm-hmm. to the black community you're supposed to lead. Yet you're not accepted. In this other world that, you know, in contemporary uh, our contemporary moment, we talk about this as like, you know, black people who code switch. Right. You know, um, you know, if you want my quick cultural analysis, the movie Get Out could only happen in the Obama era of, you know, black people with the type of social mobility Mm -hmm. that they can live a type of middle class existence, yet finding that. I still am not a part of this. Mm-hmm. You know, the main character of Get Out, he is not like, you know, any of your listeners have seen the movie like, you know, next Friday or something like that. He is not, you know, poor, you know, in, in you know, urban or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Get Out is about double consciousness. Mm-hmm. You don't belong in either world and the alienation that feels like. And so the issue for Du Bois is that he realizes this makes the town to 10th actually unfit to lead. Because they're trying to basically, there are too many cooks in the kitchen. They're trying to serve two masters. And so for me, it was always fated to fail because it imagined that, you know, the work of the mind and the work of ideas is enough to be admitted into society when really you need to change how that society is arranged for that whole identity to emerge, for you to actually be genuinely a part of, of the Republic. But the talented 10th, there simply was not, to put it this way, there was not the conditions for them to be what Du Bois hoped that they would. And I argue that he realizes this, yet he's committed to the talented tenth. He's trying to figure out, how do I solve this? Mm-hmm. And partially how you solve that is writing the souls of black folk, laying bare mm-hmm. this problem of these educated black people who are, who are so, you know, they're lost. They don't know where they belong. Do you think it's fair to say this is in a sense autobiographical that like Du Bois is describing himself as a member of the talented 10th who like had these idealistic views about changing the world by understanding all of this white culture that has oppressed you and ending up like real, you know, feeling sort of converted by it more than able to dominate it. I think you, um, Souls of Blackville must, you know, must be in large part autobiographical. Never mind the fact that, you know, it does begin with the boys giving a bit of autobiography about mm-hmm. himself. He even um, talks about, you know, the death of his son uh, in Souls of Black Folk. Mm-hmm. You know, Souls of Black Folk is, it's not, let's put it this way, it's not a dispassionate, objective, you know, telling. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. is, you know, it really is, if we want to talk about double consciousness, it is him struggling with attaining the true self-consciousness that he thinks is necessary in order to be a, um, a, 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 a leader. Mm-hmm. And I think this takes us deeper into what Du Bois thinks culture can do. He thinks culture and art can allow or make possible a healing of these racial wounds. Mm-hmm. You know, he, you know, I, I think he means it when he's like, you know, I'm sitting with Shakespeare and, you know, I feel whole. Mm-hmm. Why would you not want us to have that broadly? Why would you not want us to have that in our daily lives? Why would this only be for the few? And this testifies mm-hmm. to the idea mm-hmm. that Du Bois, you know, thinks that there are these, you know, these ideals that one can find in art that allow for taking distance from one's present situation, whether that's enough for broad social change. Well, from my chapter, you can tell, I think it's not, 
Mm-hmm. But it's not nothing either. Mm-hmm. It's definitely not. not necessary, maybe, but not sufficient, perhaps. Um, yes, yeah, gotta love the necessary but not sufficient. Yes, right. Absolutely. No, I mean that's really interesting. I want to I want to bring all this back to Utopia now because like I want to let's let's just lay on the table some examples because I think your your definition of Utopia might might have felt a little academic to folks who would be used to thinking of Utopia as you know the shining city in the clouds, standard kind of image mm. or something like that, right? Um, but like the way you were just talking about Utopia, right? I'll give one example that I think has been really great recently that I'm working on a paper on about Lovecraft Country that I think is dealing with a lot of really interesting Afrofuturistic utopian themes. But I'm curious for you, what do you feel like are pieces of of, Afro, not necessarily Afrofuturist, but just utopian art, broadly speaking, that you think kind of exemplifies what you mean by this kind of it's a mode of analysis approach to utopias? Yeah, thank you. Um, utopia for me at its base mm-hmm. is about communication. You are trying to communicate to a public and make it possible for them to deliberate and exchange ideas that seem as if they are off the table. You know, Lovecraft Country, you know, I you know I get it, you know, um, you know, I probably identify more in a Marxist vein. And for Marxists, it's really difficult. It's like, what do you do with art and the superstructure? So I've actually realized I'm now reading Emil Carr Cabral, uh, mm-hmm. this um uh African revolutionary from from the 70s. And you know, he has this great line where he says, you know, labels matter to you, they don't matter to me. What matters to me is the work we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. what we're trying to accomplish. And so I realize I need to be free of those shackles because I think that there is something interesting that happens in like a show like Lovecraft Country where you see black people in a, a mode of storytelling, a genre that, you know, usually they're either, you know, the victims or they're not there or because mm-hmm. Lovecraft was a famous, you know, famous racist, mm-hmm. they are the um the object the baddies yeah the baddies yeah and so what this does is you know utopia establishes a space of communication where you know those limits in our um uh uh, imaginative horizons what we take to be uh pre-reflectively sensible you know the the stereotypes of how we reflexively read the world get blown apart you know, the episode of uh, Hippolyta, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. which is like probably the most purely Afrofuturist, you know, episode where it's science fiction and, and at its base it's all about this black woman discovering and naming herself, mm-hmm. traveling throughout time. And there's something stirring mm-hmm. in that mm-hmm. where I am now seeing black subjectivity. I'm now seeing black bodies as something more than objects of abuse. Um, something more than, you know, problems to be solved. I am now, you know, asking myself a different set of questions, mm-hmm, you know, different set mm-hmm. of questions around black yearning, black cultural desires, black political desires. And so, you know, to, you know, to, you know, repeat myself, but to come back around, if you want to go back to the original utopia, the OG, as they say, Thomas More, mm. you know, you might think he wrote that because he was like, we need to create this perfect society. That's not what he was doing. He's trying to communicate to a public and say, see how this situation is fucked up. Mm-hmm. Give to, to furnish them the language and the ideas and the idioms to be able to describe their social existence and their social, social lives. For me, utopia, 
has been done a great disservice by being made into this, you know, miraculous, um, extraordinary um, uh, uh, mode of storytelling that's completely set off from human life. When really, utopia is mundane. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Utopia is what we do when we are trying to describe the world otherwise. When we are trying to generate spaces where we can learn how to talk about the world. Mm -hmm. otherwise mm -hmm. and so if you lose the communication part of utopia that i'm literally i'm writing to someone i am trying to speak to someone i'm trying to affect the way that they reflect upon the world then utopia isn't impossible mm -hmm. it's only impossible insofar as it you know reveals how what we thought wasn't possible actually that might not have been true Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in that episode that you reference in Lovecraft Country, which I think is maybe the best episode of Afrofuturist art ever, ever in any television show ever that I've ever seen, um, you know, there is still the part where once she has sort of achieved this kind of um, ability to name herself enlightenment, almost in a sense, rather than transcend into the Afrofuturist heaven that like is presented before her, she chooses mm -hmm. like a bodhisattva mm -hmm. almost to come back down into the world and try to help her own daughter and her family. So there is that that like how it always has to come back down um, to action yes. in the world. Another piece that I think ties. Lovecraft Country to what we've been discussing about the classics, as you say, you know, Lovecraft being one of the worst fucking racists of, of that period, and which is an impressive, mm -hmm. an oppressive feat of of uh, in that way. Um, but there is also, I think, and I think this is the part of the point of Lovecraft Country, there is value in still studying him. And I think that like anti-woke mm -hmm folks get this wrong in thinking that like the woke want to burn all of the Lovecraft books. Right. But like what you get at the beginning and like even the very first episode, right. Yeah. Atticus is mm -hmm. reading, um, yep. uh, uh, is reading Burroughs actually. No, he's not reading Lovecraft, but like he's reading another very famous racist science fiction author. And his feeling is, mm -hmm this is part of my history. Like, I want to be part of this. I want this to be part of my world. It fucking sucks that like, it's full of all this racist bullshit, but like part of the mm -hmm. point of the Afrofuturism stuff is to invert all of those kinds of tropes. Right. So instead of the black people mm -hmm. being the baddies, the white people are the baddies, right. And the black people become empowered over the course of the show. Um, now, one other piece of this that I want to bring in, I think you've been sort of pulling on it a couple of times here, is that like even amidst all of that aspirational kind of capital, there is this Afro-pessimistic element that is, I think, in 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 I would say Afrocentric sci-fi mm -hmm. from the beginning. That like um, in that same episode with mm -hmm. Hippolyta, when she's transcending and going through all these experiences, there's a passage from Sun Ra from his his movie uh, Space is the Place. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's all about like social death. It's all about how you are not a person in this world. You don't have rights in this world. I think you see the same things mm -hmm. in Butler. And I'm just curious, sort of, if, if you agree mm -hmm. that those two themes are really in Afrocentric sci-fi from the beginning that way, and how you see that tension evolving in the world today, right in our mediums now. Wow, that's a that's a really complex and rich question. So it seems to me, let's you know, put it on the table like this. Why would something like Afrofuturism arise in the first place? Well, if your experience is, you know, let's stick with the United States example. 
of you know no matter how much you try no matter how much you um you struggle you know you abolish slavery and it seems like okay so that's the hill we had to get across and we have reconstruction that falls apart and even though there are technically political laws on the books that say you're allowed to vote you know you have lynch mobs you have you know uh, poll tests, you have redlining, you might, you know, and you know, I'm not the first to say this, you know, if your listeners want to check out the book by Richard Iden called In Search of the Black Fantastic, you know, culture becomes a rich site of political protest when you're locked out of formal political mechanisms of what would, what would the world look like that is not trapped in this, you know, in many ways, this, you know, this never ending hell. And so, you know, Afro-pessimism is, you know, trying to express this, you know, this unending yearning for a world that is absolutely different than the one that we have. And so, you, you know, even though I don't think Afro-futures and Afro-pessimism are, are the same, and I'll get to that, you know, uh, in mm. a second, we can see that they emerge from um, a, a, a complaint you know, uh, they emerge from this crisis of, you know, why can't I have an organic connection with the world that I have as much a right to be in as anybody else? And then to go further, and you look at the cultural productions produced around you, and all of it is you're animalistic, you're shitty, um, you're sexually voracious, you're, you know, you're a monster. And then you want to make a place for yourself. I I understand the yearn that people want to see themselves reflected in their art, you know, in not just in what they are, but what they could be. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, something like Afrofuturism would arise because most Black people are reading the same things as everybody else. Like this is what like come, kind of like blows my mind. You know, the woke want to cancel this, the woke want to cancel that. You know, Black people, we live in the same culture as y'all. Mm-hmm. In in many ways, what what sucks is we often see what you really think of us, at least at a certain stratum, and so you want to um, develop a, an independent space where you can remix these ideas because it's it's not like yo ex nihilo. You know, mm-hmm. you, know, you got to mm-hmm. work with the tropes, remix them, put them in new configurations. Again, to go back to communicate something different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, the issue is and i i like that you brought afrofuture and afropessimism together and i might get in some trouble for this is that afrofuturism even if there is a politics to it it is you know it is deeply a cultural activity and now i think maybe when people hear me say that they think you know i am uh reducing or saying it's less important but nothing could be further from the case right i think culture and aesthetics is deeply important I am deeply passionate about it, and I think it has a, a very important role to play in you know, our political imaginaries. Afro-pessimism, as it's uh, often practiced by, you know, let's say, you know, let, you know, let's stick with just Frank Wilderson mm-hmm. and all of that. Mm-hmm. You know, my issue is, is something that seems quite clear to me in aesthetic critique a critique of cultural productions. Red, White, and Black is a book of film theory. You know, uh, much of the evidence is drawn from, you know, movies and TV, Hmm. etc. But then it's as if this is forgotten. And all of a sudden, you know, Afro-pessimism is also, you know, a social theory. It is also, you know, um, a reading of political reality. 
And if we want to like, you know, go back to, you know, what I was saying about utopias, about, you know, possibility permeating the present. Well, then me and that for pessimism, we, we just don't share the same evaluation of what the world is. Mm -hmm. And for me, I'm thinking, well, no, utopia is also part of social science. It's a part of analyzing real relations. And I'm sorry, I just don't think you get from, say, reading, you know, uh, how the, the black body is figured in training day or something to saying, and this is how the world actually is. Hmm. And so Afro-pessimism, as, you know, as it's sometimes practiced and all of that, you know, it constrains our political critique because mm -hmm. it assumes this one-to-one -one relation between aesthetic and cultural production and social and political reality that I think we need to be far more attentive to. Mm -hmm. And while Afrofuturism expands our imagination, you know, there's this, you know, there's this no built into Afro-pessimism. Mm -hmm. And it, it's this no that frustrates me, especially when it bleeds into social reality and people take these as firm tenets or firm axioms about the world as such. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, how can you ever look at Black history and not see that the world has the capacity to change. That doesn't mean that it's perfect, but you know these institutions, these institutions that deny people freedom and exploit them are constantly responding to something, mm -hmm. remodeling them for some reason. And we should pay attention to that as well. And so I am always hesitant around Afro-pessimism because I'm not sure it understands what level it's, it's executing its analysis. Mm -hmm. I don't have that same concern with Afrofuturism. Mm -hmm. I don't think uh, like, you know, people who are watching, you know, Sun Ra's movie think we're going to be getting in a spaceship mm -hmm. and we're, we're getting out of here. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't think that's the problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's really interesting. I, I think I'm generally sympathetic as, it, as I hadn't thought of that kind of approach to, critiquing um afro pessimism at the like it doesn't know what level it's working at but i am very sympathetic to the idea that it closes the door to the kind of aspirational capital that i think is that you're highlighting as being so valuable in this utopian kind of afrofuturism that you know even in like the worst i think i think and this reminds me of um in butler you know in her parable of the talents book she has this main character who is obsessed with starting this cult and like a religion and getting off of the planet and expanding into the stars and her child, her daughter can understand why she has this obsession. And I think the point of that is this kind of this positive obsession, mm. even in the midst of like grinding, brutal horror, right? Like is the only path out of that horror or part of the only path out of that horror. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, you know, Butler's protagonist escapes her captors at one point by straight up murdering all of them. And in the last, and I'm going to spoiler alert here um, for Lovecraft country. Mm -hmm. If you haven't watched it, yet, right. The very last sequence of Lovecraft country, which was changed from the book, the, the little daughter, right, who has been mm -hmm. maimed, literally maimed by white supremacy over the course of the show and now has a like, Afrofuturistic sci-fi arm mm -hmm. uses that arm to murder the main bad guy of the show who is not killed in the book. That to me is a very so the other element of Afrofuturism that I mm. think is at play here is culture is important, culture is great, but there's gonna need to be violence. 
right? At some point, mm. force is going to have to be applied to change what mm. you're talking about, the, the material side of the thing, right? There can be no yeah. peace in that kind of sense. And I'm curious, you mentioned Fanon earlier, you and I both love Fanon. Where do you fall on the idea that like this, this can't be a bloodless cultural revolution 100%? Oh, you're trying to get me canceled. Okay. All we right. are having a discussion. So, you are not, we're, no one here is actively calling for violence. We are discussing exactly. the limitations of uh, nonviolent yes. methods of cultural change. And if the CIA are listening, <laughs> you know, uh, I am a huge fan of MLK. Forget Malcolm X. Forget Marcus Garvey. Uh, ben Carson's dope. All right. <laughs> Hopefully my hand, I threw my hand off. Okay. Yeah. No. Um, if this is excerpted, definitely do not excerpt me saying Ben Carson's dope because I'm going to get on the other end for that one. Oh, that's for sure going to so be the end, of the, end of the is... episode joke is going to be for sure that. Yeah. So. Good job, <laughs> exactly. though. Thank you. Oh, dang. <laughs> you know, um, here's what I, you know, I, I'd like to say in Afro-pessimism's favor, though. You are right that you know, we perhaps should worry about um, habitual uh, passions and desires that we have of what we think progress must look like. Mm -hmm. And no one can read Afro-pessimism, whether it's from Wilderson or, or Sexton. I mean, it's hard talking about that because actually very few people actually identify as Afro-pessimists. So mm -hmm. I do a lot of work in Hortense Spillers, and she rather famously is like, I, that's not me. I'm not an Afro-pessimist. So I don't want to like call people out out of turn, you know, mm -hmm, all that. Mm -hmm. But it interrupts those desires that you might think of, you know, the narrative of how social progress happens, a sort of um, we're all going to be holding hands in the end. Love will overcomes all blah, blah, blah. I take that point. And I think that those those desires and those, that understanding of how social progress happens often needs to go. Now, on the question of violence, and this might seem like I'm dodging, but here we go. <laughs> there are two main things to say. One, violence is a tricky concept because we're not always, you know, we are, we as a culture are not always agreed on what we mean by violence. You know, I, I imagine whenever a black person says violence, I know uh, this is going to give me, I know what white people are thinking. They're thinking guns, they're thinking breaking windows, etc. But is a strike violent? To the person who owns that factory, it certainly is. You know, hmm. um, uh, when one challenges the hegemony of certain ideas, like, look, I know we don't like Robin D'Angelo, but I've never seen people get so in their feelings about a thing <laughs> called Western civilization that they've never seen before that was like, yo, invented at a particular moment in history. Because it's like some people forget Europe. Those people were killing each other for the longest time. Sure. They had no sense that, yeah, we're all part of Western civilization. Do they even think that now? <laughs> I, I don't think so. Like, I don't know. It's like sometimes people imagine, you know, you know, Europeans as like, oh, we have no tensions and all that. Come on, mm -hmm. please. And so, you know, it, it, it so strikes me that challenging even the centrality of certain ideas is, you know, Western civilization is falling. We need to get back to Anglo-Saxon virtues, which, wow. I mean... Mask off, huh? Okay. Anglo-Saxon, that's what we're going with. Um, More of a Teutonic two... guy myself, but it's fine. 
<laughs> I like that. I like that. <laughs> um, but two with Fanon, this is this is this is incredible. I think this is something that people miss with Fanon. And I gather when the anti will get their hands on him, they're probably not going to read all of Wretched of the Earth. They're not going to pay attention to any nuances. But hopefully, seems unlikely. Get to your yeah. before then, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, what is it? White mask. Uh, probably not going to be. Uh, top oh yeah, black and white mask. <laughs> nope. You know? nope, nope, definitely not. You know, what Fanon is saying about violence is you. Know, it's as if people forget he's writing from a very specific context where France is engaging in not just explicit colonialism but systematic torture of the Algerian people. Fanon is looking at colonialism. He's saying this is not a thing that is persuaded by reason. You know, the example I use with my students is, you know, could you imagine if you were alive during slavery and saying, why don't black people just go to the bargaining table with their masters and be like, yo, okay, so, you know, maybe if you give me my freedom, I still promise I'll work for you, you know, for a really depressed way. No, masters weren't asking, weren't doing like, you know, employment evaluations to see how, if they're doing a great job, there were no pizza parties or anything like that. <laughs> and so you're dealing with, you know, um, a social system that, you know, and this is why I'm like, you know, some, it is important to be specific about what we're talking about with the stakes and culture. I do not think, for instance, that, you know, if we produce enough movies where black people are shown to be cool, hip and middle class, that all of a sudden, you know, those who run our economic system, you be like, you know what, let's raise wages. Mm-hmm. You know what? Let's deal with climate change. Like, yo, I, I just needed to see like one more episode of Lovecraft Country. I'm in. No, no. And so Black Panther you know, 2 is not going to do it, huh? We're not going to. You know, well, we haven't seen Black Panther 2. So maybe that's going to be so lit, mm-hmm. so amazing that we're just going to have the ruling class be like, what? Let Africa go. <laughs> we're overturning neocolonialism. We're all Wakanda now. I'll be so happy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But the the thing I want to say about violence is that, you know, people often call something violence in, in order to delegitimize it. Mm-hmm. But if we are in a struggle of social relations, if we are in a struggle of trying to reorganize a world towards radically different ends, then we have to be prepared for the fact that no one, especially if they're on the other side of it, if they see that their interests are going to not do, do so great, if you're like a billionaire and you're realizing, wait, if we redistribute wealth, doesn't that mean less wealth for me? I don't get richer from that. Like, they're not wrong. Like, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. you know, it's not like Bezos is like, I'm going to come out great. Yo, know, if like, you know, you know, more people have access to, to, to what they need is to, you know, not let that deter you. You know, and by that, don't when I say don't let that deter you, don't let that deter you from discussing the ideas we need to discuss. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it is going to require that we work together and that is going to be called violent no matter what. Like, you know, maybe this was like, you know, one one of the least helpful aspects of the black political tradition that is now called respectability politics. Mm -hmm. You know, you could see how it could work during the civil rights movement in a way of, you know, this is a moment where, you know, um, TVs are exploding into people's houses. You know, there was no Internet. You couldn't choose your own reality. And all of a sudden, these people who you've heard of as only slovenly, they're getting their asses whooped and they're wearing these ties, these dresses, these hats. And I imagine that shocks the consciousness. Mm hmm. 
but it only shocks the consciousness because of a particular conjunction that that is working in. Mm -hmm. And so I am someone who is not a fan of violence. I'm not a partisan of violence, but I also realize calling something violence is a way of to go all the way back to what we've been talking about, delimiting our apprehension of what's really possible. Mm -hmm. It's a way of putting things off the table as if no one could ever think those are good ideas. Or if you do that, you're showing that you're a Fanonian or a Marcusean or something like that. And that's obviously ridiculous. It's a way of constraining debate. It's a way of interrupting communication. And if I think utopia is really important is we should not cede the ground to the anti-woke to define the terms from which we're going to argue. Mm -hmm. That's manifestly ridiculous. And we need to use our own judgment and understand they're playing a game of power too. Mm-hmm. They want to set up what the ABC are. We need to also be able to do the same. That's a great point, I think, to sort of uh, round us out here. Do you want to, are there any other like pieces of utopian media or things that like you feel are really helpful for understanding utopia? Folks want to sort of go farther with this? Yeah, um, I would definitely check out. It's a super new book. It's by Jarvis R. Givens. It's called Fugitive Pedagogy, Carter G. Woodson and the Art of Black Teaching. Uh, Richard Eitens, um, In Search of the Black Fantastic. Uh, and the last one, you know, like, you know, Mrs. Two on the Nose, but, you know, it's a book called um, Black Utopias by Jaina Brown. Uh, speculative life in the music of other worlds. Awesome. That's a, that's a great little reading list for people who are... This has been a lot of fun. So unfortunately, now I have to torture you. Um, so... Here we go! Yeah, this is the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. All right. I, I feel like I've been waiting my whole life for this. Let's go. Yeah, you're ready? You, you feel the, the spirit flowing through you? All right, so... Here's how this is going to go for folks who are not familiar. I'm going to give you a list of things. You're going to tell me, are these things real or not real? Those are your only two options. You cannot hedge. You don't get to explain what you mean. Real or not real. Do you understand the rules? Yes, but I, I've realized that your experience is most people try to wiggle out the rules. I can hear it in your voice. You're like, do you understand oh, the yeah. rules? Oh, yeah. All right. I know how this is going to feel. So <laughs> I've been through this, too. All right. Um, okay. So to get us started here, is anything real? Yes. Okay, great. Let's find out what is real. Whew. All right. Is the external world real or not real? Real. Okay. Colors. Not real. Phenomenal consciousness? Uh, not real. Free will? Not real. <laughs> Selves or persons? Real. Genders? Uh, real. <laughs> oh, God. It's getting harder. I, I, I thought I was ready, but this isn't. Oh, God. No, okay. there is no being ready. Races? We just spent an hour on this. Not real. <laughs> uh, species. <sighs> species. <laughs> real. Okay. Morality. Uh, real. Okay. Rights. Not real. Knowledge. Real. God or gods. <sighs> Not real. <laughs> Society. <sighs> Oh, 
Oh, not real. Okay. Money? <laughs> not real. Okay. Numbers? Not real. Fictional characters? Real. Holes? Like a hole in the ground? Not real. Chairs? Real. Sandwiches? Not real. Science? Real. Natural laws? Uh, real. <laughs> oh, Beauty? Um, real. Okay. Love? Real. Causality? Not real. And finally, time? Not real. All right. How do you feel? Uh, I, you know, I, I thought I'd feel better, uh, <laughs> but uh, it, it really, um, you really want to explain yourself, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and you're, I'm just like hoping with the tone of my voice, people can hear my argument <laughs> for why I'm saying that. So I was trying to cheat a little bit, but I'm, I'm worried it might not work. Uh, t- total <laughs> argumentation is not allowed during the lightning round. That's very funny. And you, uh, okay. and you fall into one of the rarer camps of individuals, which is individuals who split on the chair sandwich question. Usually the highest correlation yeah. we found is between chairs and sandwiches. So it's interesting that you uh, do you have any reasoning behind that or were you just sort of flailing at that point? Do you feel like I feel like I had reasoning behind it? Am I am I allowed to say my reasoning now that we're done? I like to allow people a little bit of uh, a debrief if they need it. Um, My reasoning is that, you know sandwiches insofar as they you know they take uh you know many different forms they're composed of many different parts and they take on many different shapes and seemingly uh different functions i'm just like a sandwich there is no sandwich in and of itself it's just you know materials put together and we simply name that a sandwich <laughs> while chairs i'm like you know, for me chairs there's a there's a unity to it Yo, there, yo. Van Inwagon is they're, they're, so mad at you right now. <laughs> <laughs> so for for some reason, I guess ontologically, I make a distinction between um, edible reality and non-edible reality. And it just seems to me a sandwich is just yo, a shortcut for mm-hmm. all these different parts. While chair, I guess I believe there are forms of chairs. Man, Man <laughs> forget the violent stuff and the Fanon thing. This is what's going to get you so very canceled. Uh, you are. Yeah, this is it. This is the end. University of Toronto is going to be like, wait, he said what? <laughs> <laughs> snatch back uh, uh, that leather fair enough luckily fair enough. there's some good bank to be made if you do get canceled i like to you know this is really just like a springboard for a lot of people i feel like look look about the joke that you know uh i've made on twitter is just like you know, i can't wait until i get to be you know, uh you know, a cretin of Substack. Mm-hmm. You know? there you go <laughs> it seems like you know, i don't know people do quite well after they get canceled especially the ones who are loudest about the fact that they got canceled mm-hmm. you know a lot of people get canceled don't even really have access to saying i got canceled I don't know. It seems like when people go to prison, that's a version of cancellation. Yet I don't see them on Twitter <laughs> mm. complaining about the loss of Western civilization. 
I'm just wondering, is there a material difference there? I leave it to the anti-woke to figure that out. I, I do think that prison abolitionists should do some work trying to rebrand themselves as uh, fighting wokeness. I think that would be a strong move on there. Yeah, that would, you know, that would upset the whole game. <laughs> that would really. You know, all of a sudden, like, mix it people up. no longer know which side I'm on. I would love that. I think that that's really beautifully strategic. And now you have the anti-woke being like, wait a second. It, <laughs> Is, is is the prison Robin D'Angelo? Yeah. 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 It's Ibram X. Kendi, too. That's right. It's like so... Ibram X. Kendi <laughs> Supermax prison. That one's, yeah. Exactly. Um, this is how we win. Okay. So you're not on Substack, but do you want to let folks know where they can find you on the interwebs uh, if they are interested in doing so? Yeah. Um, so you can uh, follow me on Twitter. I believe my handle is just uh, William M. Paris. Uh, of course, follow my uh, podcast handle at Left the Fill. Um, and you can find me at, on academia.edu. Uh, William Michael Paris. Yeah, great. And like, once again, Left of Filth podcast, a lot of fun, as y'all can tell. So thanks so much, William. This was a great time. And we'll get you back on to, I'm sure, continue this at some point down the line. Thank you so much. This was really, really awesome. Can't wait. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks, as always, to our listeners and patrons who make this show possible. Thanks to our newest patron, Arise Rodimus Prime, and thanks to our top-tier patrons, our Archon-level patrons, Lawrence Shielding, Jesse Rabinowitz, and Brenda Goodman, Chad T, CampQuest.org, 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 Fix the Vote, and Dude. And thanks, as always, to our Archduke-level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Little Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. Thank you all so much. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus ETV reading group content. Most of all, though it be not written down, let it never be forgotten. You are the void, and the void is you. Mm -hmm.